Welcome to Slate Church Online. We're so glad that you're tuning in today and we pray that wherever you're watching this from, that this will bless you. If this message impacts you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@slatechurch.com. Good morning, good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? All right, all right. Why don't you go ahead and take your seats, and as you do, why don't you ask somebody what their favorite Christmas goodie is? What their favorite Christmas goodie is? I, I heard some shortbread. I heard some sugar cookies. I think, uh, I think it was actually just one person who said both those things. But I think that my new favorite Christmas goodie is fruitcake. Yeah, I know. Kind of coming, coming, coming in hot with some hot takes here. A little bit of a hipster choice. But I never tried it before this week. And I think it's really good. Like, I think everybody's just kind of a hater about fruitcake. Like, it's just like fruits and nuts, and it's spicy and it's sweet, and I think it's really good. So, you know what? That's my hot take. Okay, I'm going to dive into scripture in just a second, uh, and I want to give you a chance to get prepared. So if you have your Bible, whether it's a digital Bible or a physical Bible, you can pull that out. We're going to be turning to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the book of Micah, another hipster choice a little bit. I was giving my verses to the, the people at the back table, and they were literally like, wow, that's edgy. <laughs> like, not sure that's what I'm going for, but okay. So we're going to open up to Micah in just a sec, chapter 6, verse 8. Before we do that, I want to introduce myself. My name is Nathan Lambert, and alongside my wife, Emily, we are the site pastors for our Waterloo PM location, uh, our Maxwell services. Uh, and it's really just been so cool jumping in and beginning to lead that location over the past few weeks. We have this incredible young leadership team and, and some amazing volunteers who are just really full of faith and so expectant for what God's going to be doing there. Uh, but we also just love to see what God's doing here at the Inn of Waterloo through our morning services. We love Love seeing what's happening at our Elmira location. Uh, and one thing I want to highlight is that all of this is possible just through the faith and the vision of our lead pastors. You know, we get to serve under four incredible lead pastors, Brandon Emma Richardson and Luke and Victoria Becker, and really them stepping out and having the faith to just blaze this trail and take what God's given them uh, and just lead faithfully with that and carry out that vision for this region uh, is really what has allowed all of this to happen for us to be a part of this healthy, thriving, life-giving church. So keep just join me in just thanking our lead pastors this morning just for everything they've done. All right, let's jump into it. Micah, the hipster choice. It's a small book of the Bible uh, and one that, to be honest with you, like I haven't spent that much time in. Uh, it's not before this. Uh, it's not one that I can say was I'm most familiar with uh, out of all the books of the Bible. It's a collection of poems and writings and speeches by this prophet named Micah who spoke on behalf of God to the Israelite people. Um, it was actually shortly before a quiet period between the end of the Old Testament and Jesus coming to earth in the beginning of the New Testament uh, that he wrote this. And in it, he highlights the sins and confusion of the Israelite people. He warns them of the punishment they will receive, and he paints a picture of hope, speaking of a new kingdom brought about by a king who will be born in Bethlehem, speaking of Jesus. 
And so in Micah 6, 8, it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Why don't we just take a second and pray? God, I thank you so much for the opportunity uh, that we have to be in your house this morning. I thank you for the chance that we have to, to just come before you and lift up your name and worship, Lord God, to receive from you and what your Holy Spirit is speaking to us this morning. And I just pray right now that we would be open, that we would be available, Lord God, and that we would just be ready for what you want to show us and what you want to teach us today. Thank you, Lord God, for everything you do for us. In your name, amen. All right. I want to see like where like the, the, the old school Pentecostals, people who maybe grew up in that tradition are in the place this morning. Who has ever heard of the phrase living in the fog? Living in the fog. Like one, one shameful hand went up. It was like, a, I think we just got like a pointer finger. Uh, <laughs> living in the fog is this old school phrase. Uh, it's super cheesy. Uh, and it just means uh, living in the favor of God. Living in the favor of God. We want to be walking in the fog. It's super cheesy. Um, but I've been living in a different kind of fog lately. I've been living in a food fog. It's not the favor of God. I'm just full of goodies. Is how I went to talking about cheesy. Dang. I've just been on this wild blood sugar ride for the last few days, though. I, like, went home on Christmas to my parents' house, and, and I made this, like, turkey sandwich, and it was, like, homemade bread like this, and then I put, and then I put stuffing on top of the bread, and then I put potatoes on top of the stuffing, and then I put cranberry sauce on top of that, and then I sprinkled a little turkey on top, and it was just, like, a carb on top of a carb on top of a carb on top of a carb. It was, like, a foot-long sleeping pill. I was just like, I was about to get knocked out by this thing, and I thought that was bad, but then I hit the perfect storm, because yesterday, uh, we had my mom's side of the family, family Christmas, and here's the thing. My mom is one of six siblings. She has a bunch of sisters, and I think they all just kind of want to outdo each other every single family gathering when it comes to food. Like, they all have to be one-upping each other, and so what you end up with is, like, three different appetizers that are all more than enough to feed every single person who's there. There's, like, three different main dishes. There's seven different desserts. They're all just going all out, and then the worst part was there was supposed to be 26 people there there yesterday, but 10 were sick, and we only had 16. And so if you're doing the math, there's six siblings, there's only three sisters there, uh, and so they all prepared enough food for 26 people to have appetizers, dinners, and dessert, so there was enough food for like 75 people, and there was 15 of us, and we ate most of it. It was fantastic. I swear, between my chest and my knees, I'm 90% cheese right now. But I think a lot of us can relate to this in this time. You know, between December 25th and January 1st, it's like this foggy time. We don't know what day it is. We don't know where we are. We don't really know what's happening. We just know we ate a lot of cheese. And now there's pizza, and there's some turkey, and there's some stuffing. And, and The Mandalorian just released his last episode on Netflix. And we're super excited. Don't spoil it. Haven't seen it yet. We don't even know what's going on. We don't know what day of the week it is. It's just all a blur for us. It's a fog. But I think we need to be careful to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to live a life in the fog, to live a life 
unaware of what's happening, to live a life where we're so caught up in consuming the things in our calendar and in our days. We're so caught up just consuming what's in front of us, just going through the motions, just doing uh, uh, the, the relationships in our life, just going through the tasks that we have to accomplish, just stepping into the things that are in front of us, and so busy and focused and narrowly focused that we actually end up living in a bit of a fog. We lack perspective and vision for the future because we so get caught up in the tasks of today. So in this foggiest time of year, I think it's helpful for us to pause and find some perspective. To look towards the future with clarity. We're entering a new year, but not just a new year, we're entering a new decade. That's big. That's weighty. There's a significance in that. And I think what blew me away most when I was thinking about this was actually just looking back at the past 10 years and realizing I couldn't have even imagined where I am today back then. And let's just like, let's do this for a sec. Let's think about 10 years ago and where things were. A newly elected Barack Obama was managing a financial crisis and the outbreak of swine flu. Some throwback. The average house cost was $232,000. Uh, that a few painful laughs in the place. Taylor Swift was still making country music 10 years ago. And a young Nate had just won the English award at his grade eight graduation. Yeah, I know. Do some English. Uh, apparently not well. Uh, but seriously, so much can change in the span of 10 years. And I wonder if we've stopped to consider where we're going to be in 2030. I wonder how many of us have stopped to consider what God has in store for us over the next decade, over the next 10 years, what he has planned for us, what he's preparing us for, and the vision that he has for our lives. It's sobering to stop in the, and consider the significance of what lays ahead. And today I want to encourage us in our purpose. I want, to speak, I want to speak to the vision that God has for our lives, and I want to provide some perspective for us on our futures. Let's look towards the next decade. Let's see what God has in store for us, and let's have a vision for our lives that pierces through the fog and provides a focus that's not on ourselves but on God. All right, so the book of Micah. See, in the book of Micah, I think we find the Israelites in what could be described as a foggy time, an unclear time. There's a lack of clarity and morality within the Israelite people at this time. They don't have a confidence in who God is. They're no longer fully relying on him. And due to this lack of clarity, this lack of focus on God, they start to search for other things that they can rely on. And so Micah starts to warn them because these people aren't just, they aren't relying on God anymore. They're starting to build uh, these poles to worship other gods. They're starting to go and follow the religions of the nations around them. They're allowing the traditions that they were supposed to be set apart from actually become something that they incorporate into their faith, not focusing solely on the God that has provided for them in the past, but actually starting to look towards other gods because they're lacking in their faith. And because they stop relying fully on God, because they don't have their source in who he is, and they're setting up these false idols all over the place, it actually starts to lead towards corruption. 
See, the priests and the prophets become consumed by greed. It says in Micah that the priests at the time were, were, were accepting bribes and taking money and using their power and influence to gain more wealth and amass even more power and more influence. And it says the prophets at the time were giving prophecies to people uh, just based on how much money they would give them. Like, you give me enough money and I'll just say that God's going to do good stuff in your life. They were glorified fortune tellers. I think this is what happens. See, when we don't have our foundation on God, when we start to put our foundation in other things, when we start to rely on our own powers and our own abilities, and we start to look elsewhere for our source of strength, then I think it's easy to fall into greed. Because we're just trying to do it on our own, so of course it makes sense to get milk as much money we can out of the positions of power that we have. Of course it makes sense to do whatever we can to get ahead ourselves because we're trying to do it all in our own power. We're not caring about others. We're not looking towards others. We're trying to build ourselves up because that's what we are relying on. And Micah warns them. He warns them of coming armies that are going to conquer them if they don't change their ways and the way that God is going to take this vengeance on these people who are corrupt. And it's a little fire and brimstone, to be honest, but I think it's a powerful warning for us because the biggest issue here is one of infidelity, actually. You know, it's interesting, the Bible as well, it says, uh, you know, the, the one reason uh, that really makes divorce valid is infidelity. It's going to somebody else. And I think in the same way with this, uh, in, our, in the marriage between the church and God, one of the ways that, one of the most significant ways we can reject God is by going to other sources for our power. It's by looking for other idols for, 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 for our strength and actually not relying on God and trusting that he is going to be enough. And so Micah warns them, but he also paints a picture of hope. See, he doesn't just warn them of of you know, what's going to happen if they don't turn from their ways of corruption, but he actually speaks to uh, a future that's coming that's going to be even greater. He speaks to a king that's going to come out of Bethlehem. He speaks and prophesies of Jesus coming and, and talks about the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish, a new Jerusalem, a place where the lame will be healed, where there will be peace between nations, where there will be a restoration of glory. And for those who are faithful, who hold on, God will restore them. And throughout this book, what we see is a picture of two types of goals, I think. We see greedy goals and we see God goals. We see what happens when we don't rely on God, when we don't have our faith in the right place, and how that leads towards a corruption and a focus on greed when we look towards the future and what we can gain for ourselves. But then we also see the hope that we can have when we rely on God, the hope of an actual good future, a future that is actually based on him, a future where we actually see miracles happen, where we see God moving, where we can step into our purpose and where we can have God goals for our future, not greedy goals for our future. And so as we look towards the future, I think we need to be careful in considering what we have an eye for. As we look through the fog, what are we having an eye for? See, we can look at the next decade and we can start to set goals that we can see. Outcome goals. We can start to set goals like finding a new house. Not a bad thing. Or a new car. Maybe we have a goal of finding a spouse in the next 10 years by 2030. Some of us are hoping it happens by 2030. Some of us are looking for a new job or, or a degree. But I think that we're actually missing the point here. Like, I love SMART goals. I don't know if you've heard of SMART goals. They're specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, targeted, and time 
Sensitive? Time-framed. Time-framed. There we go. Had to refer back to the notes there. I love SMART goals. They're great. It's awesome. I think when I'm at work and I'm setting a goal, it's good to have good, measurable goals. But when we're talking about our vision for the future and the outcomes that we expect to see in the future, I think we can make the mistake of going back to this SMART goal model. When we're looking 10 years into the future, I don't think these goals are going to cut it. Because if we have the specifics of what's going to happen, if we can map out the steps of how we're going to get there, then it's not faith. See, if we can see it and we can plan for it and we can map it all out in our own power, then it's probably not really taking a whole lot of faith for us to believe for that. And I, and I really believe that, that we're making the same mistakes as the Israelites were. We're putting our trust in our own power and our own plans rather than having a faith for what God is going to do. And what God can do when we submit to the, with the outcome to him in faith is always greater than what we can accomplish in our own plans and our own power and with our own priorities. See, let's not have an eye for the outcomes, but let's have an eye for the process. Let's not be consumed with greedy goals for our future, but let's focus on becoming the person and the people that God has called us to be so we can accomplish the things that he has set out for us to do. See, I don't know about you, but I don't really care about what Nate's plans for the 2020s are. I don't really care about what Nate can accomplish by 2030. I don't really care about the budget spreadsheets I can whip up and the house I can save for. I don't really care about the goals that I can achieve at work and the work ethic I can put in and the things that I can accomplish in my own power because I know that if I submit it to God in faith, if I give it up to him, if I exchange my greedy goals for God goals, there is going to be so much more ahead of me than I can possibly imagine. I might not know exactly what they are. I might not be able to see all the details, but I know that if I have faith and surrender the outcome to him, God is going to build his kingdom. And that means the sick will be healed. That means the lame will walk. That means nations will find peace and dead things will come to life. It means lost children will come home to their heavenly father. So let's give up our greedy goals. And let's trade in a great future that we can see for a God future that's beyond what we could imagine. If we want to have a faith-filled perspective that puts our trust in God and our future focus in the right place, we need to have an eye for the process. We need to have an eye for justice, mercy, and walking humbly with God. As Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, immortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, this is a moment, uh, this is a moment where, where, the, where, where Micah's writing and he's saying, what can we do? Can we give a whole river of olive oil to God? Can we give a thousand rams? What can we sacrifice? What can we give to be made right with God because of our corruption and our sin and the places that we have fallen short? And what's being written here and what it's saying is, no, 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 no. I've shown you what's good. Upping your level of sacrifice isn't going to make you okay with me. That's not what I'm actually looking for because you're still just trying to do it in your own power. You're trying to amass your own wealth and buy me off. No, 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 no. What I'm asking of you is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with me. We see this reflected again in the New Testament. 
In Matthew 23, 23, I love it because uh, Jesus himself says this. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness or, or humbly walking with God. See, these are the areas of process and development we can have an eye on if we want to have the proper perspective heading into this new decade. See, I think that we need to exchange the eye for the outcome and have an eye for the process, focusing on these things that Jesus lays out as the most important areas of the law, the things that are after his own heart in our lives. So let's start with this. Let's start with an eye for justice. All right, I got to tell you guys a story. It's a bit of a confession, um, and you're going to be the warm-up for me here in the 9 a.m. Because my parents are coming to the 11 a.m., and I don't think my parents have heard this story before. So this is me getting it out to you guys first. Let's just hope this is a place of trust, a place of love, a place of respect. Nobody's going to judge me too much, because I still feel a little bit guilty about this, but... I remember when I was in grade eight, I decided that I wanted to skip school. I know. I'm pretty hard. Um, I was in grade eight, and I decided I wanted to skip school. So here's the thing. I went around it like I was in Ocean's Eleven, though. Like, I went all out. My friend Andy and I, we, we got notes from his parents that they had written before. We got notes from my parents before we went digging through their office. We found their handwriting. We spent like an hour practicing their calligraphy and learning the writing of each of our parents so we could get it down pat and own their signature. We faked notes for each of us, and we had different teachers, so we thought we could make it work. We had different excuses so nobody would get suspicious that two best friends were both going to be away on the same day. And so we did this, and we gave our notes to our teachers, and we decided to skip school that day. And I was just wrecked with guilt, like the entire time. It was the worst day because I felt so bad the whole time knowing what I had done. And it got even worse because partway through the day, Andy's like, all right, dude, we've literally just been in your basement this entire day so far. This is not a fun time. This is not Ferris Bueller's day off. We're just in a stinky basement. Like, we got to do something. And I was like, okay. And so I was like, all right, we can, let's go to Wendy's. Let's go to Wendy's. That was our big adventure. We're going to go to Wendy's. And so we walk out and we go to Wendy's. And sure enough, we're walking through the parking lot. And our friend's mom pulls up beside us. She's like, hey, guys. What are, uh, what are you guys doing out here in the middle of the day? Why, why are you guys here? And like we made up some lie and like felt so awful and we ran back and I was so scared that I made Andy and I hide in the fruit cellar in my parents' house for the rest of the day because I was sure we were going to get busted. But come on, I think we all know that feeling when we've done something wrong. You know, we know that feeling of, of guilt when we just, we know that something isn't right. And I, and I remember, actually, I had this feeling again when I was in the workplace, and, and a Christian employer of mine tried to pay me under the table to avoid taxes. Like, man, what is it about, like, Christian business owners and not wanting to pay taxes? But really, I think it's, like, hard for us to put a stake in the ground and proclaim our faith when we're actively treating our friends, family, and even our government unjustly and without the proper fairness that they deserve. 
You know, I think that so often as Christians, we can have high ideals for everyone around us, yet we don't actually take it upon ourselves first to act justly in the places and contexts and situations that we find ourselves. We don't choose to first uh, own the honor that we need to be showing to the people around us, own the fairness that we need to be showing to the people around us, because that's what justice is. It's fairness. Acting justly is us treating others fairly in the way that they ought to or deserve to be treated. It's dealing justly with the government, with our friends, with our family, with our businesses, and with our relationships. I think it's powerful. In Matthew 7, 3 to 5, Jesus says this. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And this isn't to say we must be perfect. We don't have to get it right all the time. We're not going to be perfect. We're not always going to be uh, totally great with, uh, you know, every way that we interact or deal with people. I love Pastor Brandon will often say, he's like, hey, if we haven't offended you yet, just get ready because we probably will. And he'll always say, like, hey, I'll be honest, I can be a hypocrite. I make mistakes. I mess up. But the, the difference here is it's about how we're judging others versus what we're taking ownership over ourselves. See, we're not going to be perfect, but we should always err towards first changing what we have the power to change. See, and I think going into this next decade, going into this next year, looking at the vision that God has for our lives and cutting through the fog of life, I think one of the first things we need to do is take ownership of our actions. Let's make sure that we are not just holding others to a high standard of justice, that we're not just getting offended when others don't treat us fairly, that we're not just getting offended when the refs make a call that doesn't go our way, but we're actually uh, stepping up and saying, hey, I'm going to take ownership over this, over that broken relationship with my family. You know what? I'm going to take ownership over that. Yeah, I was hurt. Yeah, I was upset. Yeah, this was tough for me, but I'm not going to let the way that they're acting or responding in this be the defining factor of this situation. I'm going to choose to act justly myself because that's what I have power over. That's what I can control. See, in our situations and relationships, how can we improve? How can we lead others better? How can we care for others better and act justly to those around us? I believe we can improve our reactions. I think we can improve how we react to the situations that we find ourselves in, specifically in just situations. See, are we making the choice to be offended or are we choosing to forgive? Are we making a choice to actually get upset and allow anger to consume us or are we making choices to actually forgive and have grace for the people around us? I think that we can, uh, that I think that we can act justly through, and show justice through our honesty through being straight up with people, through not harboring emotions and feelings against other people or towards other people that we aren't ready to work out. We have a saying here at church, and it says we like to go up, not out. We like to go up, not out. And, and what that means in an organizational structure context is you go up to your leader rather than just talking about stuff to people around you. But I think the more important principle underlying this is the idea of going to someone who can solve the problem. See, whenever, there's no such thing as healthy venting. 
There's no such thing as venting in a healthy way. See, we need to either take problems to the people who can help solve it, or we can take it to God, or we can just sit there and, I guess, be mad for the rest of our lives. But when we actually go and we vent to others, when we share it out with people who aren't involved in the situation, that's really just gossip. That's just spreading around our mess. And I think that there's so much power in us being just and honest with people, not holding on to and harboring things and sharing them with our friends and sharing them with our siblings and sharing them with the people on our team and sharing them with the people in our connect group, but never actually sharing them with the people that we have a problem with. We need to be taking our problems to a place where they can be solved. We need to be honest in our dealings and how we work with people. And lastly, I think we need to improve our honor. I think we need to improve the ways in which we uplift and, and we shout out and, and we just uh, and we build into the people around us. I think there's so much power in honor. Honor is what allows us to move quickly and effectively as a church. It's what allows us to build God's kingdom in a healthy way. It's like the, it's like the oil that greases the gears of the church. It's what builds God's kingdom by allowing us to build up and uplift others, to see the best in others, to encourage others, and to always have an ear and an eye towards how we can build into others and improve ourselves. I think we need to commit to first focusing on what we can change, judging slowly, and striving to live above reproach this decade. Before we can step into the great things that God has for us, we need to do good with the opportunities in front of us. I think this ties really well into the next point, which is an eye for mercy. We need to have an eye for mercy. And I've been thinking a lot about something weird lately, which is near-death experiences. And like, I don't know, there's just something so fascinating about a near-death experience. And I might sound all high and mighty, like, oh, it's like, wow, I'm just like considering these things. But to be honest, it was mostly because I saw Star Wars. <laughs> and if you haven't seen it, I won't say any spoilers, but I've been thinking a lot about how a near-death experience can change a person after seeing that movie. And kind of, yeah, some people get it. Um, and it reminded me a lot of my friend Evan. Evan was a guy that I worked with at Tim Hortons. Uh, we also did some Cold Stone Creamery stuff together. Uh, when that was shortly lived in Canada, singing songs like Cold Stone, you're at Cold Stone, we're a scooper duper family, hey, hey, hey. I, for my interview for that job, I, ha I, I had to dress up as my favorite ice cream. <laughs> and so I wore a white t-shirt with Oreos taped to it. And then they made me sing in a truck stop Tim Hortons in front of like 60 people and your boy can't sing. And it was awesome. It was so fun. I love that job. Uh, but Evan and I did that job together. We'd be like doing tricks, throwing ice cream, all that stuff. And Evan was just the most joyful person you'll ever meet. He's a big dude. He's a smiling dude. He's always happy. He's always willing to encourage somebody. He loves race cars. He loves race cars. He builds race cars. The dude builds like drag racers that he actually takes out on the track. It looks like a bucket of junk and then it just blows everything like, you know, totally out of the water. He's like, he just, he's awesome. He loves his life. He's so joyful. But the thing is, Evan has a heart condition. And most people with his heart condition don't live past 30 if they even make it there. And, and, and Evan is in a position where that if you even like were to like jump out from around a corner and scare him too much, he could like just die. His heart would just stop. If he does too much physical activity and he falls over or he gets his heart working up too much, it could just stop like that. He doesn't really know how long he has to live. He's unsure. 
He has no idea. But he said that that experience and that knowledge changed his life. See, because he said he used to be bitter. He used to be angry. He used to be upset. He used to be caught up in his emotions and his feelings. But once he found out that he didn't know how long he was going to have to live, once he found out that there was a short runway for him, he realized that he just needed to maximize every moment that he had. He just needed to live uh, knowing that he could die at any time. And it's kind of dark, but it led to him being one of the most joyful people that I've ever met. And he still goes and races race cars. And even though it can stop his heart, he's crazy. But I think there's something we need to consider is that we've all had a near-death experience. See, we were dead in our sins. We were dead in the mistakes and transgressions that we've made. We were dead in what we've done and the corruption that we've had in our hearts. And we were saved through the mercy of God. Through him, we were brought back to life. And I think that we need to live like people who have had near-death experiences. We need to take hold of every moment, take hold of the joy, and never allow that fact to wear old and stale with us, but let it always drive us to do more. Let it always drive us to love more. Let it always drive us to have a love for mercy. But not just a love for the mercy that we've received. I think more than that, we need to have a love for the mercy that others receive. And that's where it can be hard. You know, it can be easy to love the mercy that we receive. To be like, y'all, thank you, God. I'm free. I'm saved. I've accepted you. I said I'm going to follow after you. I believe in you, Jesus. Now I'm saved. I received your mercy. I'm living in your grace. This is awesome. But, oh, what are those people doing? Oh, but, ah, man. God, I'm saved. I don't want to be around that kind of person. Oh, no, man. I want to walk away from that situation. Oh, man. Hey, God, I know that you had mercy for me, but, like, have you seen what that guy did? Did you see the way he cut me off in traffic? Did you see what finger he just showed me? Come on. You better not be having mercy for that guy over there. Right, God? Matthew 9, 10 to 13, Jesus says this. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like to the disciples, go get your mans. Where's, what's he doing? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus didn't come so that we could sit on a high horse and rub our salvation in the faces of others. See, we aren't called to laugh at those that we think are corrupt, whether that's a politician or a prostitute. We're not called to scorn and look down upon people we see as immoral. We're not called to look at those in other religions and just say, ah, too bad, they missed the boat. No. See, we've been called to surround ourselves with these people and to introduce them to the love of a Savior that can transform their lives and pull them out of their brokenness. See, when we resent the mercy of others that, that others have been shown, we actually invite punishment on ourselves. And I think that in this place, we need to love mercy not just for ourselves, but love the mercy that's extended to others. Let's be cheerleaders for others. Let's be excited when others thrive. When somebody who has hurt us and who has done bad things to us and who has broken us down, when we see them thriving and God using them and him moving in their lives, let's not get upset. Let's not get jealous. Let's not get fearful of it, but let's rejoice in it for it's God doing a good thing. Come on, you can clap for that. 
And finally, to love mercy, we need to love it for ourselves, we need to love it for others, but we also need to show mercy. Not just treating others with justice and justly as we talked about, not just treating them fairly as they deserve, but actually forgiving them and releasing them, showing them an above and beyond kindness, lifting up the people we love, but also lifting up the people we despise, being there for them, being willing to help out, being willing to lend a helping hand, being willing to look for the opportunities to serve and care for and forgive others in our lives. And that's the challenge over these next 10 years. Over this next decade, if we want to see through the fog and step into what God has called us to, we need to have an eye for justice. We need to have an eye for fairness and treating people properly in everything we do. But we also need to have an eye for forgiveness, an eye for going above and beyond to honor and respect the people around us, an eye for helping out when people need help, and an eye for looking at even those who have hurt us the most and saying, hey, I'm going to have faith for this person. Because God has faith for him. They are his child, and he's not giving up on them, so I'm not going to give up on them. And I struggled a little bit with what to call this last point, an eye for humility, an eye for faithfulness. But ultimately, I think it can be best summarized as an eye for the Father. See, we aren't capable of being perfect on our own. We aren't capable of loving mercy all the time and all things on our own. We can never act perfectly just on our own. And we can never do enough to earn God's grace and to earn his forgiveness. See, as we move into this year, we're called to pursue these good things. But we won't make any progress unless we surrender to the source. Unless we submit ourselves humbly before God, recognizing that he is the only supply we need. Makes me think of a, of a parable Jesus told of a son who takes his inheritance from his father and goes out and squanders it all. Ending up in a field with pigs, smelling like crap, and realizing that even his father's servants are treated better than he is being treated. I'm sure he thought he was a self-made man when he was out there. Spending his father's money, hitting the town, probably told everybody he had received just a small loan of $2 million, and it made no political fans in the place, okay? All right, that's fair. Uh, but in this moment of humiliation and desperation, he recognizes the true source of everything he's had, and he humbly returns to his father, repentant and willing to work as a servant if his father will take him. And the father welcomes him with open arms. In the same way this year, this decade, let's recognize the source of our supply, fully trusting and throwing ourselves to the mercy of God, landing before him on our knees, walking with him in humility. Like sailors on a dark and stormy night, trusting the guidance of a lighthouse to bring them in safely, or a child that knows no source of life and sustenance other than what their mother provides, let's be completely reliant, breaking down any illusion of our own power to save ourselves and giving up the idea of being self-made, giving up the grip that we have on our egos and accomplishments as if God isn't the source of every good thing that we have. See, the son who partied and came back had a brother who stayed. And when the brother saw his father throw the party for the son that returned, he was angry because he had never left. 
And it kind of made me think. It kind of made me think that this other son, he kind of had a potpourri mentality. See, one brother literally smelled like crap. If we were in on my ride, call it something else. They can say things up there. But <laughs> one brother literally smelled like crap. He literally smelled like poop. He had been in the fields with pigs and he came and he threw himself before his father and he put himself at the mercy of his father's generosity in order to determine what his future would be. But the other brother, he had this potpourri mentality. He had a self-righteous attitude. He said and did all the right things, but really he was just covering up the stink in attitude that he actually had the stench of his poor perspective. See, he still believed that he had earned the greedy goals that he desired in his heart. He still believed that he had earned the party. He still believed that he had earned the celebration. He still believed that all the good things that were coming to his brother, he was justified in, he had earned, he had done everything right, and so he deserved it. He was looking towards that outcome, not looking at the process. He was trying to do all the right things on the outside, but not doing the right things on the inside. And I think in this place, if we want to step into all that God has for us for this next decade, we need to give up the outcome perspective and have a character perspective. Exchanging our greedy goals for God goals and submitting ourselves fully to what God has in store. Not trying to hold on to our own plans, not trying to take things in our own direction, but giving ourselves up to God's plan and his directions, trusting that his desires are greater than our desires. Let's give up our potpourri Christianity. Let's not try and cover the crap that we find ourselves rolling in sometimes. Let's embrace the place that we find ourselves in and fall before God in an act of surrender, giving up our future to him, knowing that he is going to do so much more with this decade than we could even imagine in our own power. Why don't you stand with me this morning? Thank you for watching. Again, if you were impacted by this message at all, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email to mystory@slatechurch.com. You can also visit us online at slatechurch.com and fill out one of our online connect cards there. We would love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. And don't forget to stay connected with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.